Welcome to episode 16 of the Birding Life podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shropsky Optic, one of the world's leading producer of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasso bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing birding locations, and the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so that you don't miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. In today's show, I get to chat to one of South Africa's leading voices in the world of birding, the author of many great books, the director of the Percy Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology, Professor Peter Ryan. We'll be having an in-depth chat about the new Sassel Birds of Southern Africa Field Guide 5th edition. He will also share about his birding journey, how his love for birds started, and lots more insights both into the world of birds and ornithology. If you'd like to order the Sassel Birds of Southern African Field Guide 5th edition, we have worked with Wild Birds, an internet-based bookstore, to make it easy to get your hands on the book at a great price. Click on the link in the comments of this podcast or on any of our social media posts about this episode to get your hands on this great field guide. Okay, so Peter, you're a well-known name in the South African birding community, but for the sake of those who might not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm currently the director of the Fitzpatrick Institute at the University of Cape Town. Um, I was born in the UK, but came out to South Africa when I was 10 and have been living in Cape Town more or less ever since. And growing up in Cape Town, you kind of get into desert birds and seabirds and shorebirds. I started while well, a school kid working at the Fitz, doing a bit of shorebird survey work with John Cooper. And one thing led to another, did a BSc at the University of Cape Town. And then when I was looking around for research projects, um, the one that really caught my eye was looking at the impacts of plastic ingestion on seabirds, not because I was that interested in the impacts of plastic on seabirds, but it got me the chance to go to Marion and Gough Island, which was always a, a long-standing ambition. And yeah, I kind of managed to keep doing that ever since pretty much. So yeah, I have a, have a great lifestyle alternating between a bit of birding and a bit of work at the university. So you must have quite an, an understanding family. <laughs> yeah, well, my wife's also a biologist, so she kind of understands more or less, spends some time on the islands as well. So she, she can appreciate why I like to go and spend so much time on these amazing islands. So I've been going through the, the new Cecil um, field guide, but before we chat about the, the Cecil guide, what other books have you been involved in? Um, you uh, going way back. I was involved in the first, uh, Atlas of the birds of the Southwest Cape with Phil Hockey and Miriam Netherway. That's going back a long time. I guess the biggest project I was involved with was the revision of Robert's seven as a fully referenced handbook. Um, that was a massive job. Um, and we're just about launching the revision of Robert's eight now. So kind of girding up for that major mission. Um, done a couple of uh, Southern Ocean things, a field guide to all of the plants and animals of the Tristan Group. That was a really nice project. Um, done quite a nice coffee table book on the Prince Edward Islands. 
Uh, and I guess from a bird ID perspective, probably the biggest project was the field guide to the birds of sub-Saharan Africa, which uh, Sinclair and I did some time ago. Um, it was over 2,000 species and gave me an excuse to travel around the continent a bit more. So how does your approach to writing a book on birds look like? Yeah, it depends very much on the on the uh, on the book. So the field guides um, are really just a bit of a slog. You know, it's all about numbers. So the individual texts are not a huge amount of effort necessarily, but it's just you know people think eight hundred is is a number, but when you have to write eight hundred texts, then it becomes a much bigger number. <laughs> um, so yeah, those you've just got to to slog away at. Writing um, other books where there's a bit more narrative is, is perhaps more rewarding, although you know, it's different sorts of challenge. I think what I have enjoyed about um, I've been doing, been going through the Southern uh, African seabird, the, the seabirds, the book you did, and I think what I have enjoyed about it is, I mean, obviously we're in the middle of lockdown, so we can't get out and do pelagics and that at the moment, but it's it's a nice book in terms of the fact that it gives you information about the birds. It doesn't just have the traditional field guide approach, but you can actually lo- like sit and spend time reading the book and learning more about the birds, which I think, you know, adds value, which which I think is really great when you when it comes to your books. I not like Fancy's books. You know, it's the type of books you can sit down and read a bit more and, and learn a bit more about the birds. So, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the books of yours. I've had have the opportunity to go into. Well, thanks very much. Um, it, that's the the luxury of doing a you know smaller subset. Uh, you mentioned Fancy's books. You know, if you're just dealing with uh, fifty or a hundred species, you can put a lot more detail in. Um, even the Seabird Guide. It was you know, I was space constrained. Strake wanted something small and. And affordable but I, I tried to pack in as much biology as well as the id stuff because they are such amazing creatures um, they lend themselves to telling stories about their lifestyles out in the ocean so we've got you on the show today to mostly have a chat about the new Cecil birds of southern africa the fifth edition i want to start with a question the question is this is why should somebody get the new field guide and why i ask this question is um i know a lot of people have their field guides and they you know their field guides are a lot more than just a book they used to look at birds and it's it is stories now uh, i've got a lot of secondhand bird books and people you when you open them up next to the different species people have written where they've seen the bird and there's memories attached to that book and for some people they might have a, a bird guide that's a lot more than just a field guide why would you say to those people that it's a good idea to get the new um field the new Cecil field guide um, I guess the main reason is um, to catch up with all of the, the new changes in terms of new species, splits and lumps. Um, but, but really, I think the biggest selling point is the, the new artwork. So Sassel has been around for almost 30 years now, and there hasn't been a major revision of the artwork. It's been sort of patched up here and there. And so this is the first revision that's really done a fairly substantial amount of changing to the artwork. Um, obviously targeting the groups that we felt were most in need of attention. So all of the raptors have been repainted. Not that Peter Heyman's plates weren't good, but you know, 30 years on, I think we know a lot more about raptors. So that was really good. And then um, the seabirds, we've learned so much about seabirds in the last 20 odd years uh, with digital cameras in particular, helping understand plumages and things. And so it was a real coup to get Francie to do the, the seabirds and also to do the night jars. So some of the trickier groups getting much better treatments. So one of the things that's interesting about the new Cecil field guide is the choice of bird on the cover. It's a, a phenomenal picture. I know Francie Peacock painted the the cover 
the the art for the cover and the bird that was chosen was the ground woodpecker so do you know the thought process behind why this specific species was chosen because let's be honest it's not the most colorful species of birds in south africa i mean there's other birds that might be maybe more attractive why was this specific species chosen yeah there was a lot of debate um you know obviously over the years this is now the fifth cover so um kind of to to a degree starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel for species that we can use um the idea was has always been that it must be a representative species of the region so you can't pick something that's just marginal into southern africa you want a bird that's typical of the region ideally you want a bird that's hard if not impossible to see anywhere else so preferably an endemic but then it also has to be a striking species you know if we went with sclater's lark it might appeal to a, a small subset of birders, but most birders is going to look at it and kind of go, oh my God, it's a little brown job on the cover. So the, the publishers have a fairly big say as to, you know, they want something that's got sufficient color that they can pick up and run with in terms of the, the title uh, texts and other things. And we went through a whole bunch of um, suggested species backwards and forwards and everybody had an opinion and nobody was happy. And eventually I think it was Warwick who said, what about the woodpecker? And I was like, yes, absolutely. And uh, Fancy actually was a little bit reluctant. He was like, oh, they're rather scruffy things, um, but he'll give it a go. And I think he's done a, a really wonderful job. Um, they are such charismatic birds, perhaps not the most striking, but you know, they've got a lot of character and they are very much a, a sort of iconic species of the you know, sort of montane grasslands of, of South Africa. I must say, out of all the covers, they've been a long time and many bird books. This is probably my favorite of all the covers. And a lot of the birders I've spoken to, they think the covers are winners. So you guys have really hit it out the park. So well done on that. So I'm going to chat about an aspect that a lot of people who ask you about the Cecil Field Guide probably would not speak about. But I think it's the one aspect that I've always gone, it's, it's an aspect I've always been able to use in the Cecil, like you get um, really clever oaks like you <laughs> who understand all the the finer details of the birds but one thing that really helps us a lot of times is the glossary in the in in, in the you know in the near the front of the book and i must say the cecil field guide is one of the better books in terms of the way the glossary the glossary is drawn out and i know even in this um this specific one it's a it's a newly drawn glossary so i think it's features like this that actually make the guide accessible for those who are looking for a first field guide newer birders so what are the features do you think make the Cecil a good book for newer birders? Um, yeah, it's, you know, going back to, to Cecil one, um, it was very much up against Newman's and a lot of people still prefer Newman's because it is simpler. Um, you know, there are fewer illustrations. Um, when Ian conceived of, of Cecil, he wanted to go the sort of European field guide with as many plumages and, you know, detailed illustrations as possible. And I think that, that can be quite daunting to, to beginner bird watchers. So there certainly was uh, resistance to move across to Sassol back in those days. Um, over the years, you know, people have got used to Sassol and, and a lot of nice new features have come in. I think one of the really nice innovations, I can't remember which edition it was, but the, the, the sort of quick guide mini illustrations on the inside cover just to help you navigate your way around the book is a really nice innovation um you know we came up with the calendar bars in the fourth edition um to, to to show the seasonality of breeding and presence in the region so there's a bunch of features that, that make it accessible i think 
um, while still fulfilling the niche of a comprehensive guide. It's, it's always a, a tension between the, the beginner who, who wants the common species and, and not to get distracted with too much detail versus the advanced birder who knows all the common species and, and really wants the detail on the obscure things that, that perhaps is of less interest to, to the beginner. Um, and hopefully, I think, uh, working with Strike, we've managed to, to come up with a, with a balance that, that more or less works. I, I would say we're probably a little bit more on the advanced side of the curve, but that's because we, we're trying to be the best field guide in the region. I think something about Cecil field guides throughout the years, and I don't know how this might have been a thing that's almost come in from the beginning with Ian Sinclair. It's got a very unique style of drawing. I, I don't know how to explain it. They're a little bit bolder, um, it's almost easier to see the features than in some other guides. So can you tell us a little bit about the thought process that goes behind how the birds are presented on the plates? So uh, in, in terms of the plate style, that's very much up to the artists. You know, the, the authors give them a brief and say, we want this species, you know, an adult male, adult female, and a juvenile, and we want it in flight from above and below. But then it's up to the, the artist to come up with the visualization of that. Um, and so it's really important that you work with the best artists. Um, and, you know, I think Cecil was very fortunate right from the beginning to get Norman Arlott, who's got vast African experience, but is, is also, you know, obviously a very accomplished European-based bird illustrator. And Peter Heyman, who was at that stage, you know, sort of one of the top illustrators in the world, thanks to his Shorebird book. Um, so we started off with a very solid foundation. And then we've kind of tried to build on that ever since. So yeah, it, it really is kudos to the artists involved. It's not, certainly nothing to do with the, the authors. All we get to do is to sort of nitpick and say, no, we don't like this. You know, can you make that a little bit whatever? Um, and sometimes that goes back to the artist we painted or sometimes it actually gets amended electronically using Photoshop. And it's amazing what you can do with Photoshop within the stroke offices. Um, we have designer Dom working on the book and, you know, if we think the bill needs to be a little bit longer or a little bit shorter or a little bit heavier or a little bit more this colour than that colour, they can do that in Photoshop um, quite, quite neatly. So I looked at some of the seabirds as an example and a good example is the wandering albatross and I could look at a lot of other species but I looked at the wandering albatross and I compared the, its plate to the previous edition and the pictures are a lot bigger in the new guide. And if I compare it to another well-known field guide on the market, there's a lot more variation showed. So how different are the plates in this book to the previous Sassel editions and what changes have been made? As I said, um, I think, you know, there have been massive changes in certain sectors. There are other places where it's, you know, it'll be very familiar because it hasn't changed too much at all. So a lot of the passerines are still more or less the same. There are places where we would have liked to commission new artwork but we just kind of ran out of budget there was a, a fixed amount of budget for artwork um, but we yeah, after much debate narrowed down where we really felt we needed to to invest the the changes and that was in the pelagic seabirds and the raptors and then you know sort of here and there throughout the rest of the book so yeah night jars completely redone as well so there's a few places where it's really strikingly different and obviously we've hopefully focused on the areas where the need was greatest um, i mean you you comment about the wandering albatross but just 
for anybody who's spent time at sea, the difference between the old seabirds and the new ones is mind-blowing. I, I think Francie's done an incredible job. Um, seabirds are not the easiest things to illustrate, and he's done just the most wonderful job on them. Um, I don't know whether you heard the uh, the book launch the other night, but he was saying his favorite plates were the shearwaters, and I absolutely have to agree that I think he's done the best job of painting shearwaters of anybody that I've ever seen. It, they're very subtle with an awful lot of detail, and he's managed to capture that perfectly. Yeah, I'm just looking at the shearwaters plate right now. You know the detail he gets. You know the coming in, uh, coming in close with the birds, and yeah, oh, it's phenomenal. And just and I th- I think the shearwaters, and would probably point to my next question. I'm going to ask um, on the launch webinar with BirdLife South Africa. Um, they mentioned the plate with the starlings. Now, I was really glad about this because I sometimes struggle with the starlings. And they they spoke about how the plate points out things to look at on different starlings in the field. And I was, like I said, I was very relieved that I'm not the only one that struggles with starlings. I thought it was a bit of a <laughs> bit of a relief from my side. But is this a feature that's used on other plates? You know, the, these things where, where it points out you know, difficult to identify birds. Just the things that that help make it easier. How how wide is this used across the the guide? Um, yeah, so uh, Neil Perrins was tasked with doing the annotation of the plates. That was one of his big inputs to the new edition. And obviously, Neil and Dom do a lot of guiding. So they're used to taking people who don't know the birds through the steps of how to identify them. So I think you know that field experience that they have taking birders who haven't got knowledge of the birds quickly to the salient features um, has hopefully been captured in those annotations. So the idea is that you can look at the plate, you don't even have to read the text, you can just look at the plate and go, okay, I must check, you know, the shoulder, is the shoulder this or that? Uh, Is there a white wing bar? Uh, Is there a white throat patch? Whatever the case may be. So hopefully those annotations really focus in on the salient ID points. So let's chat about some of the tricky species. Some of the trickier birds, obviously, for a lot of birders are raptors and LBJs, the nemesis of many birders. So how does the guide assist in simplifying the identification of these tricky species? Yeah, well, (laughs) we try your best. Um, There's never going to be an easy solution to raptors. There's just so much variation with age and uh, color morphs and sex differences in shape uh, and age differences in shape. Um, but what we've tried to do is is capture more of that variation. So, you know, you can write about it endlessly, but ultimately the illustrations are what sell field guides. And so that's why we, we spent an awful lot of our budget on repainting all of the raptors. And I think Alan Harris has done as good a job as you can expect, given the diversity of raptors that he had to cover. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of raptors and a lot of detail. Um, so hopefully the people who like looking at raptors will appreciate the effort that's gone into those groups. In terms of the LBJs, you know, it's, it's really hard to compete with something like Francie's LBJ book. You know, we're trying to cover nearly a thousand species in one book. He was, had the luxury of being able to just focus on um, the LBJs in a similar size volume. So, you know, if you really want to get into the LBJs, you know, you're still probably going to end up reverting back to Francie's book. But hopefully we've captured most of the, the key points, um, you know, that, that will get you at least most of the way there. Um, but for LBJs and any other group of birds, really, the tricky ones, it comes down to experience. So all you can do is go out there, work on the groups. 
um, and work with people who know them and uh, hopefully over time they'll become easier. So let's chat about the species accounts. I mean, I think a lot of your experienced birders, this is the thing that they enjoy. I mean, I often go in the field to experienced birders and that's the stuff that they enjoy reading through. So how different are the species accounts to the previous editions and who are some of the authors that contributed to them? Yeah, so the, <laughs> I don't think the species accounts have changed as radically as they did from the third to the fourth edition. So um, when I came on, on on the fourth edition, we brought across most of the texts from the photo guide that Ian and I did some uh, years before that. Um, so there was a really big revision of the of the text there. Um, this time it's it's more of a tweak here and there. So you know all of the authors just went through and updated where they felt that there was new knowledge that needed to be captured, um, perhaps more detail for some species where we have a better understanding. But you know I think most of the species accounts haven't changed that much. So this wouldn't be really a question from the previous edition to this edition, but just I'm just very curious to know, you know, from the, the, the outset when Ian Sinclair would have been a part of writing the first species accounts, how, how much has the, how much would you say the text has, has changed since then? Is it, has there been quite drastic changes or if you had one of the earlier editions of the Sassel, would a lot of it be very similar? Yeah, so the original Sassel text was very largely taken from the original photographic guide. So Back in the day, we had Roberts was the only book that was available for identifying birds. So I started birding in the 70s, and it was just about impossible to identify things like shorebirds and seabirds because you know, we only had the, the grayscale dodgy illustrations in Roberts. And then Newman's field guide came out, and that was spectacular. You know, We had a real sort of plate next to text kind of format. And then shortly after Newman's, um, Ian put out his photographic guide, which um, I think was widely acknowledged to be the best ID text. Ian was at that stage far and away the best birder in the in the region in terms of having seen the largest number of birds. You know, he, he traveled all around Southern Africa, seeing all the birds, rediscovering birds that people hadn't seen for a long time. And that text from his photographic guide uh, was largely taken into the, the Sassel um, first edition. And a lot of the ID features, you know, haven't really changed for for birds that are easy to identify you know it's still the same features so you you can certainly see common elements i think what has changed is perhaps some of the additional information not so much around the id features but perhaps around a little bit more about the biology of the birds sneaking in as we try to kind of yeah <laughs> you know, there's a bit of tension between the publishers who want it to be an id guide and and people like me who think we should use it as a bit of a Trojan horse to introduce a little bit about biology and conservation. And so we try to put in uh, whether the birds are listed as uh, threatened and so on. So th there's been evolution, but for many of the easy to identify species, you can certainly see common threads running right through from the first Cecil. So that's a, an interesting point you brought up. So how meaty is the text? I know it's not a, a great word, but how meaty is the text? And I asked this question because for some of those who are not as clued up with the technical terms that are in birding, sometimes a field guide's text can be quite intimidating. How do you feel that this guide has balanced both the information as well as as being accessible to the reader? Um, hopefully we've done a reasonable job. Uh, I would always, you know, err on the side of putting in more. Uh, we're you know, some plates where we only have two or three species on a page, there's quite a lot of white 
page left on the left-hand side, and I kind of feel we should be using that. The trouble is if you, if you start doing that, then you really struggle to fit in a comparable amount of information on the plates where you have five or six species covered on a page. So there's this conflict between how many species you can fit on a page based on illustrations and how many you can fit on text. You know, we, we completely loathe to move away from the text opposite plate layout because that's just so convenient. So there is this limit on how much text you can actually fit in um, when you don't have too many illustrations per species. But once you move to things like raptors or perhaps some of the seabirds where you're having six, seven, eight illustrations per species, um, then you, you sometimes only have two species accounts on the page. Um, and it, it always irks me that we're wasting space, as it were, that could be used to put in more information. Yeah, I mean, hopefully the texts aren't intimidating. Um, you know, they follow a set format and, and we're kind of constrained by that format. And in some cases, it's just not that much to say, you know, in, what can you say about a crimson-breasted trike? You know, it's pretty distinctive. Um, yes, there's a yellow color morph, but you know, beyond that, um, you can talk about the juvenile plumage, but you're not gonna write 20 lines on how to identify a crimson-breasted trike. This podcast is made possible by one of our sponsors, Birdlasser. Spot, plot, play a part. The Birdlasser app is available for free on both iOS and Android platforms. Be sure to download it today and seamlessly contribute to conservation initiatives. So how up-to-date are the distribution maps? And I know you guys use the Sabob data to put that, that together. And, you know, has there been a lot of changes in the distribution since the last edition? Uh, yeah, Dom uh, was the guy who spent the long hours going through all of the SABAP maps. Obviously, SABAP 2 is mainly based in South Africa, so it's not as good for updating the rest of the subregion. Um, so it was a little bit of mix and match here and there. Um, we were very grateful to get input from people like Etienne Marais, who know places like Mozambique well, to say what's changed in Mozambique since the last edition came out. Um, so we tried to draw on not just the, the citizen science databases, but also the experience of people who know areas particularly well. You know, we, we're in a time of unprecedented global change, certainly in human history. And so things are changing quickly uh, and we tried our best to capture that. Um, so a lot of the maps did change. Um, one of the great features in this book is the bird call app. Now, just just to clarify that the bird call app is different to the the Sassel app that we were talking about in the previous episode. Um, can you tell us a little about the bird call app and how it works with the barcodes in the book and how the calls can be accessed by users? <laughs> I'm the last person to ask about this because I'm a bit of a technophobe. I don't really do cell phones particularly, but in theory at least, um, you can download the app free onto your phone and then you just point your phone at the barcode in the book and it will automatically play the song on your phone that's my understanding of it um, but i hasten to admit i've never done it myself because i don't carry a cell phone around with me i must say on that there and i've i've been one of the people that's privileged to get the field guide up using using it for about two weeks now and um when i first got the guide uh I'll be honest with you, i'm one of those people you know, I just, oh, there's the bird call, try to scan it. And I downloaded those random scandals off the internet and it didn't work. And I was like, oh my word, this doesn't work. I was going to get a hold of 
um, strike and say this thing doesn't work and that kind of thing. And then you read and there's actually a strike app for it. So <laughs> just read properly on how to on what app to use. Um, otherwise, you're going to be a bit frustrated like I was. Um, so let me ask you a practical question. If somebody is listening to this episode and they want to grow as a birder, how would you suggest they use their field guide to do this? And what are some practical tip, tips that you can give them? Sure. Um, there's no substitute for time in the field. So, you know, get some good, good optical aids, um, uh, ideally a telescope, but, you know, obviously at least binoculars and go and spend time in the field, uh, sit and look at birds, sketch the birds yourself, you know, take field notes. Yeah, compare what you see with what you're seeing in the field guide. But, you know, it's often better to actually just sit and look at the birds without referring to the field guide to start with it depends you know what kind of situation you're in how friendly the birds are but i think if you're starting out birding it's always best to start with a group of birds that that are not gonna time limit you so go and see your local sewage works or dam and look at some water birds that are going to be sitting there happily for some time and you know just just work out you know is this a grebe or is it a duck you know how do grebe differ from ducks you know, why, why isn't this cooter duck, you know, how does it differ? And, and, and just get a feel for, for some big and obvious and easy birds. And then the skills that you develop on those groups, you can start to transfer to trickier groups that might give you less time to actually sit and study them. Um, that's, it's all about just developing field craft um, and understanding the, the kinds of things that you need to be looking for. I think when people start birding, they, they tend to focus on color and maybe size, you know, but it's, it's much more about the shape and the behavior. You know, color is, is a variable thing. It's not something that you should focus on exclusively. You must be much more interested in, you know, is, is it a robin or is it a thrush? You know, how do I tell robins from thrushes? And then once you've got to the right level, then the, then the color can come in and tell you, you know, is it a curry shane thrush or is it a, an olive thrush or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, that's the fun of birding. If it was easy, um, it wouldn't be a challenge. I think when I had Fancy on the show, he mentioned the idea of actually learning to describe birds without using the colors and describe the bird. If you, if color is not an option, how would you describe the bird? And it's a really, I've done it a couple of times. It's quite tricky because, you know, almost the lean to we look to is to the color of the bird. And he said, learn to identify the bird with its yeah, behavior and the, the other the other side of it so peter i'd love to have you on the show in the future again but i can't have someone with your caliber and not ask you a couple more questions maybe we can have a chat in the future about maybe the fitzpatrick um, institute and what that's all about because i think a lot of birders know about it but we don't really know about it it's kind of that cool organization but let me ask you a couple of questions firstly how did you get into birding how did this birding journey start yeah, I think uh, growing up in the UK, uh, maybe it's because you're so deprived <laughs> um, in terms of contact with wildlife. Um, you know, I just from an early age, I was obsessed with with all things natural. So I, I used to collect newts from the pond down the road. And, uh, you know, I got super stoked when I saw my first lizard, you know, in, in the UK. Those things are super exciting. Um, and yeah, growing up in the UK, birds are the easiest thing you can relate to. So I, I was always interested in birds. And then coming to South Africa was just a mind-blowing experience. Um, so yeah, I just was always always into it from an early age. And I was, I guess, fortunate to end up in Cape Town and, and have access to places like the Fitz and interact with people like John Cooper, who were, were able to open doors for me to actually carry on and make this a career. 
And was it something that you were thinking from a young age, getting involved in this on a full-time basis, or was that did that just happen? No, that just, just pretty much happened. I mean, I kind of always hoped that I would end up doing something that got me outdoors and doing, you know, things to do with nature in some broad broad way. But I think when you're a kid, you don't really know how it's going to work. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just, you just kind of bumbled your way along. I didn't have any grand plan or anything, but um, it worked out pretty well. What age did you actually move to South Africa at? Um, so, yeah, my family came here when I was 10, so I didn't have any choice in the process. Um, but, you know, I was very happy to leave the UK and be here. From somebody who's interested in wildlife, being in Cape Town is immeasurably better than being in uh, Yorkshire. And then besides bird, do you have birds, do you have any other passions, anything else you're into? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I have lots of interests, I guess. Um, but, it, it, yeah, you know, I do a bit of surfing. I do quite a lot of work on plastics in the ocean. Um, but yeah, if you chat to my family, they'll tell you I'm a bit of a workaholic. So I'm, I'm pretty much always doing something vaguely work related. You know, I've got some long-term plant projects up on the mountain behind. I think increasingly I find as I get older, I'm, I'm less obsessed about traveling around and seeing things. I just like pottering around locally. It uh, seems to be a common pattern as you get older. So yeah, it's uh, always got to have projects locally though um, that I can do without having to get into the car and drive I, I really enjoy walking so um, living as I do next to the sea and with the mountain behind that's a, that's a nice compromise and then working at the Fitzpatrick Institute what does a day in the life look like for Peter Ryan <laughs> well, at the moment I just sit at home and look out the window and uh, no it's crazy at the moment uh, we're doing all of our teaching remotely I've been on campus twice in the a lot um, so it's it's challenging it's really tough for our students at the moment because a lot of them are sitting in pretty lousy student digs um, so I really feel for them um, we're obviously trying to make their learning experience as varied and as useful as possible it's a little bit easier for the postgrad students those of who are fortunate enough to be able to do field work we can get out and, and carry on doing what we're doing but yeah you know, it's it's trying times what is your favorite species of birds and why do you think that bird is is the, your favorite? Yeah, that's always an unfair question. I've got lots of favorite birds. I mean, you know, you, you can't you can't really have have favorites. I think, you know, there's there's certain birds that that appeal to you for different reasons. So, just locally, I think I'm I'm wouldn't say obsessed, but I really enjoy the striped flufftails that I have up on the mountain behind the house just cuz they're so damn difficult to see. Um, so it's always a challenge to to get to grips with those. From a work perspective, I really enjoy working with the wandering albatrosses just because they're accommodating and placid. Um, you know, they they're really very happy to kind of let you annoy them, and so we we do a lot of work with wandering albatrosses just because they're so accessible. And then I've got a real soft spot for the inaccessible rail just because, you know, it is such an amazing bird, the smallest flightless bird in the world and the last survivor of, you know, a whole diversity of flightless rails. You know, there's, there's so few of them left now. To see this little tiny thing running around your feet is, is very special. So I've got lots of favorites, but a few, a few that stand out, I guess. And then do you have any bogey birds, birds that you really want to see that you've looked hard to find and they're just elusive? Any bogey birds? Uh, yeah, everybody's got bogey birds. Um, so the only bird that I've ever tried to twitch by flying 
um, is Golden Pippet. So there was that Golden Pippet at Rustavinta back in the 1990s, I guess, that was around for about three months. And in those days, we still had the, the ultra cheap midnight flights. And after three months, Rod Cassidy phoned me up and he said, you've got to come see this bird. It's been here for ages. There's people who are seeing, you know, white stalk on the same day as a lifer as Golden Pippet. And you've got to come see this thing. So they checked it was there in the evening, you know, in the afternoon. We got the midnight flight. We were there at first light in the morning and it was gone. It was the first day it hadn't been seen in three months. And I've, I've never quite got around to going and twitching another one since. So I guess Golden Pippet's my biggest bogey bird. So yeah, let's, let's, let me ask this question. For someone, who is, for someone who is passionate about seabirds, you must have had some hair-raising stories of being out at sea looking for birds. So what's the scariest out-of-sea adventure that you've had? I could, I could tell you one story, but it would probably get me into deep trouble, so I won't tell you that one. Um, generally speaking, I think um, I, I'm very fortunate that most of my at-sea work is done on big ships, um, you know, research vessels, so it's not like small boat, hairy stuff. I remember one fun day when I was out with Harry Dilley on the Zest with, um, with a bunch of, of mostly overseas tourists during the week who went out in very marginal conditions. and and we got out into the deep and the, the weather turned faster and nastier than we thought. And Harry decided the only thing to do, I mean, by this stage, it was Harry and me on deck and everybody else was down below heaving their guts out. It was pretty hairy. And we got in the, the wake of this big bulk carrier and we surfed north behind this big bulk carrier um, to get more favorable angle to get back round Cape Point. So that was an interesting day out. But, Generally speaking, um, yeah, my, my time at sea is, has not been terribly eventful. I have more adventures on islands than I do out at sea. And for those that don't have sea legs, what is some advice that you can give them for doing birding for seabirds from land? Is there any advice that you can give which, where they can increase their chances of seeing birds uh, seabirds from land? Yeah, that's, that's another game entirely. I mean, as a kid, I used to do a lot of seabirding from Cape Point and Comakee. And, you know, you put in the hours, you'll see the birds. But um, once you've been out to sea and you see them up close, uh, there's, there's no comparison. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, all you can do is persevere. And sometimes you'll go out and you think the conditions are absolutely perfect for getting birds pushed in and you'll see nothing. And then another day you'll think it's pretty marginal and the birds will be coming right past the point. So, yeah, you just like all these things, it's uh, luck of the draw whether you get it good or not. But if you really don't have good sea legs, uh, one thing I can say for you is that, you know, you probably get better if you persevere. So I used to get horribly sick on small boats. Um, to the point where I really didn't like doing small boat work at all. And I'm still not a huge fan of it, but um, I'm a lot better than I used to be. So I think as you age, your sensitivity to seasickness does deteriorate or get better and, you know, your, your sensitivity gets less. So um, part, of the thing that, part of the project that BirdLife South Africa is involved in right now is the flock to Marion. Obviously, we're waiting with the whole COVID situation to see if that's going to happen. But, you know, for those who are looking to go on the flock to Marin or have booked already, what, what could they expect to see? I know this is not something you, uh, you, um, I prepared you for, but, you know, what, what, what type of things could we expect to see on the, you know, the flock to Marin? Um, a lot depends on how close to the island we can go. So there's still some debate with the Department of Environment Affairs whether they're going to let the ship go right up to, to the island. Hopefully they will, in which case it'll be an absolutely mind-blowing experience. Um, you know, the, the numbers of birds around the island in summer are incredible. Um, so, yeah, it will 
it will blow anything that you've done before completely out of the water. Um, it's the diversity of birds within a day or so steam of Marion is truly spectacular. You know, you've got penguins leaping out of the water all over the place. You've got five or six species of albatross, um, umpteen petrels, diving petrels, storm petrels, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty spectacular stuff. And then the islands themselves are, are quite amazing to look at as well, particularly Prince Edward. Um, it's got some beautiful scenery. So yeah, hopefully um, we'll be able to go up close to the islands and get to grips with the inshore species like the Kerguelen Tern and the Crozet Shag. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be good. I think it's important to bring along a scope if you've got one, because um, once you get into the lee of the island, it's actually pretty flat calm. We took a tourist trip down there in 2002, um, and having a scope made a really big difference for just actually looking at the island and seeing things like the bills and stuff. But uh, it'll be, a, it'll be a, an adventure, I'm sure. And how many of the species that we can encounter are found in your Seabirds of Southern Africa book? Um, so the, the seabirds of SA actually goes right down to the continent. So everything that uh, occurs at Marion is in the book. So if you are planning to go and flock, a, flock to Marion, get the book. I think it's a, a really good investment. So um, now that you've finished with the Cecil Birds of Southern Africa, what is your next project? Um, as I say, we, we're kind of gearing up to uh, revise the, the Robert's Handbook. It's going to be a, an online product. So it's not going to be a hard copy, which is going to be a big sort of change, I guess, but it was already getting out of control in terms of size. I don't know whether you have a copy, but you know, it's that sort of four or five kilo big blue book. Um, so to, to cram in everything that we need to um, in one volume is just not feasible anymore. So it's going to go um, online and uh, that will allow us to have much more information than there is even now. So. Um, Derek Engelbrecht um, from Limpopo is, is the sort of lead editor on that and the John Fulke Bird Book Fund led by Hugh Chittenden is busy sort of gearing up that process. So Dave Allen, myself and Derek um, are going to be working on that for the next couple of years. I'm looking forward to that project. Definitely the book is quite heavy. <laughs> so here's, here's the last question. This is, I'm going to go deep for the last question. So Peter, obviously, you've been involved in, in seabirds and conservation, ornithology for many, many years. What legacy do you want to leave when, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, and the name Peter Ryan is mentioned, what legacy do you hope to leave? Sure, that is a scary one. Um, you know, I'm just, I, I hope that there's still some people around in 50 or 100 years who can still have birds to look at. Um, you know, we live in very trying times. I think, you know, if people say to me, what's the, the most important thing you've done in your career? I, I, I normally go to uh, kind of getting Inaccessible Island conserved. So when we first started working on Inaccessible in the 1980s, it wasn't a reserve of any form. Um, and there was talk of putting sheep back on the island. Um, and through sort of uh, quiet diplomacy, shall we say, working with the Tristan community and the Tristan government, we managed to get it first uh, recognized as a reserve and then um, it's now a World Heritage Site together with Gough Island. So, you know, that probably to me is the most rewarding thing that I've done. Currently, if we can get mice eradicated from Gough and then Marion, you know, then I can retire happy if we can restore those islands. You know, it's, it's really hard to make long-term conservation 
games in a continental area because there's so much pressure from people um, you know while we continue to grow as a species and our impact on the planet continues to grow it's finger in the dike stuff in most areas but for these oceanic islands that are uninhabited we have the potential to restore them back to something close to what they should have been and so it's very rewarding uh, to work in that arena and and hopefully in the next year or two we'll manage to get the last introduced mammals off Gough and Marion and restore them back to what they should be. Yeah, I know the Mastery Marion project's a really great project. I know my local bird club, BirdLife, is important to tell we've been able to give towards that. And maybe I can put a link in the comment section of this for the Mastery Marion project. So if anyone wants to get involved in that, it's a good place to, to invest into. So, Peter, I wanted to say thank you so much for giving your time. It's been a huge privilege to be able to chat to you. And it's been a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to chatting to you in the future again. Lekker. Thanks very much for taking the time. The Cecil Birds of Southern African Field Guide 5th edition is available now wherever you get books. But like I said, we want to make it easy for you to get your copy on this as well as other resources mentioned in the episode. Click on the link in the comments section of this podcast or on any of our social media posts about this episode and head on over to Wild Books and order your copy today. To stand in line to win a copy of the Field Guide courtesy of Strake Media, head on over to Facebook and share the post advertising this podcast. Make sure you're following both the Birding Life and Strake Nature Club on Facebook to be eligible. On next week's weekly trip, we continue chatting around seabirds as I've a chat with Dominique Rollinson about land-based seabirding. He'll be giving us lots of tips on how to see more seabirds from land as well as telling us about all the best spots in the region. Don't forget to follow the Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. I appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. And be sure to head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.